Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me, Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them. And now on with the show. Hello, it's Anita here and welcome to the latest episode of this podcast. This time I'm talking with Bev Foster, who is founding director of Room 217. Room 217 is a social enterprise based in Canada that uses music to change the culture of care. And although that focuses on care for elderly people, it also goes beyond that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Why I thought you'd be interested is that it's an organisation that takes a particularly holistic approach to music in care settings. Rather than providing musicians, it provides music training for care staff, as well as research-informed products like conversation cards, music books and CDs, so that music can become an integral part of the day-to-day life of the home. So welcome, Bev, and thank you so much for joining me. It's really great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Anita. It's just such a pleasure. Oh, thank you. And it is particularly good to be talking about something so positive at such a strange time for everyone around the world. I'm sure things are just as challenging over there in Canada at the moment. Absolutely. I sort of was thinking that although obviously it's an incredible period of, of turbulence and change, I want to say early on that we won't be focusing on the pandemic because I'm hoping that we can take people's minds off this at least a, for a little while. And I hope that's okay with you, Bev. Just fine with me. So tell me about what Room 21 is and how it came about. So Room 217 is a social enterprise. It's, it's really a health arts organization here in Canada. And we want to change the culture of care, as you've mentioned, but Very specifically, we want to improve the care experience. And by positioning ourselves there with that vision, it means really we're addressing the needs of the one who's receiving care, but very much we're trying to help the one who is giving care. And we we actually use both of those lenses in our work, um, all parts of that care experience equation. So that's really what we do. We do it through developing and producing music care designed resources through education and training in music care, as well as uh, research and collaboration. So that's the scope of our work. We really aren't clinical. We don't go in bedside or in in any kind of way where we we take music in live. Uh, We have so many colleagues that do that, and we like to support them as well through education and training and and, uh, some of the research. But we leave that to them. We're addressing this great need in care in this unique way. And I'll tell you why we're doing it in this unique way. It comes from a very personal experience. Some years ago in a little rural hospital just north of Toronto, um, my five siblings and I, my brothers and sisters and my mom were around my dad's bedside. And he had an 18-month terminal illness. And music had played a big part of my coming around him and coming alongside him in that. But at that moment in the hospital, all of us around his bedside as he was dying, music became the thing which connected us with each other, with him. Um, It was a way we could bring him comfort. I I guess I would say it was an experience of connectivity, uh, of comfort, and of communication. But, you know, the communication wasn't so much in words. It was through the songs. It was through the tears that came with the songs, sometimes even the laughter. It came, the communication came, maybe not even through the words, because frankly, we didn't even remember, remember them all, but that wasn't the point. 
The point was that we were joining together around dad at this time of transition, singing the songs that were important and meaningful to him and watch just how that actually strengthened him for the journey that he was about to go on. And then how it actually connected us in, in this incredible, in this incredible way. And it was this, a whole lot of years of experience uh, with some of these songs, but it was very much in the moment. And that's what music can do. It kind of brings times right to the forefront and can trigger and call out memories and just be there to help support in time when uh, life is being threatened or in some sort of complex care situation. So I had a very personal experience. And when I left the hospital that night, it was so moving to me as a professional musician, watching what it did for us and what it did for dad. I just wasn't the same. I just went, okay, this, this is just what happened for us. What happens with other families? So I had two questions when I left Anita. First, was there anything more powerful than music to bring people together through the passages of living and dying? From what I observed, I just hadn't seen anything in his trajectory and, and in his care of the 18 months that was as powerful as that. But probably what's motivated me even more is this question, the second question, do caregivers, family, professional caregivers like the nurses at the nursing station who really had nothing to offer us in music, volunteers, do caregivers have access to tools, understanding and evidence about music and care? And so these, these questions that I asked myself that night when I left dad, they continue to be the mission drivers at Room 217 even today. Oh, wow. What an incredibly moving founding story. That must really propel you to carry on with your organization, no matter how hard it gets. It sounds as though it's something really, really important to you personally. And that always makes for a more kind of powerful organization, I guess. What were you doing at the time? Were you a professional musician or did you work in the care setting? Or I um, My background is as a music educator. I, I've worked as a music teacher in an elementary and high school and I have my own private studio for years. So those, right. that, that's my professional background. I guess my connection to care, a couple of connections, I guess I've always seen my, my craft and what I do in music as something that's like, it, it actually is inherently a caring kind of thing. <laughs> it's got an element of care in it, whether you're teaching music, whether you're performing music, you're connecting with other people. And because music is so powerful and reaches every part, I'm intimately aware of that power so you do music full of care, I guess you could say. Um, and that's how my approach has always been. But specifically with care settings, always, always, I, can, I just can't remember when I haven't done it, even as a teenager at my own school, but when I was a teacher and with my studio, we'd always go into care settings and do concerts and some one-on-ones. My grandma lived in a long-term care facility for for 15 years and that was just part of my weekly routine was to be with her and most often it was in music and my I remember when I was a teenager making at that time it was it would have been cassette tapes <laughs> in the 70s I actually made care tapes for people friends uh, neighbors that and family that may have been sick I guess in some ways when I look over my shoulder back through my life it completely makes sense why I'm here right now Oh, that's so fascinating. I also, um, yeah, I also am playing professionally at, at the time when you say when this started. So I, mm. I had a number of contracts professionally as well as a professional musician. So all of that to say has counted for this work. 
Amazing. And particularly the, the kind of mixtape things um, for, for yeah. personal care that fits so well with what you do now. So what happened first? Um, what happened after that moment when you left with those questions in your head? What was the next step? Yeah, the next step was just crystallizing at least an idea I could pitch. So I, I mean, my real interest was and continues to be in palliative and end of life care. And so I really just wrote down some questions and pulled together an advisory group, palliative doc, palliative nurse, uh, and, and some other some other more allied professional people in palliative care and met with them and we just asked some questions. I, I met with palliative music therapist. How did you get and, those people together, Bev? Because often it's, it's sort of hard getting a foot in the door. I know from music organizations that I work with, sometimes it's just hard getting even a conversation with people. Well, you simply ask. <laughs> and and I think it was I think it was an idea. You know, at that point, it, you just sort of say, I have an idea I'd, I'd really like your advice on. That's always yeah. a great way to go in is I need your advice. That was no no word of a lie. I needed their advice. It, this was, was not my world. So that was our first step. And I guess... The tangible, like, well, that's fairly tangible, those meetings, but tangibly speaking, we then made a demo recording of what it might sound like to have some music that was made and designed especially for palliative care. And so, you know, just identifying some of the both production and therapeutic values. And this, these were the kinds of things I was trying to understand from the professionals. So things like we decided to use familiar music because, you know, there are some schools of thought at end of life that you don't use familiar music. You use music that people don't know so that they can actually sort of be released into the unknown. Um, mm. But our interest was more in psychosocial and spiritual care. So it made more sense for us after chatting with this advisory group to use familiar music, which really helps make associations, helps with life review, and in a sense can blanket people in comfort of what they've known. And so that's the choices we made. We decided to do the music, perform it at 60 beats per minute, which entrains with resting heart rate or syncs up with resting heart rate. So in other words, our music's gonna be on the really slower, slow side, so more sedative, not, not as stimulative. Um, we decided we were gonna only use few, in, the, in terms of the texture, a few instruments. It wasn't gonna be symphonic or anything like that. It was gonna be very gentle. Yeah, so some of those kinds of decisions that you make early on inform then how the performers perform and inform how we actually then message what we're doing to the care world. Mm, and so it started off with this idea of providing a product for care homes. Well, yeah, think, think of it more like a tool because there we were in the hospital. I, sorry, I, I go back to, to my own experience, but there we were in the hospital. And with all due respect, that had been in a large Toronto hospital for you know 100 nights of that 18 months. Not once had he been offered music. And it's not a diss, it's just an observation. And the more I asked, people didn't know what to give, right? So it was more about trying to define something. Interesting. And then, so how did you start the part of your business that is now quite prominent, which is that whole thing about training care staff? It's a, such a fascinating story. And I, I'm sure one day I will write it down. But <laughs> So I'm an educator. So for me important moments or when people go oh or yeah. like we call them aha moments right because yeah really people don't know what they don't know myself included so what we did is we created these first three albums this was in the mid like 2005 2006 and i basically went from province to province in, in canada to hospice palliative care conferences and our national conference and 
I just really found my tribe. What a, an incredible group of people. Just phenomenal, really. And it's, I guess it was just timing, but the timing was absolutely right. And they were hungry for the, so I would go and do workshops with the albums, but broaden, broaden the topic more about music and, and care and music and hospice care, not just so much about our, our albums. I mean, our albums were part of the conversation, but just a small part of it. It was more about how to use music and care and how to begin to integrate it. And if the truth be told, I mean, I, I'm learning as I'm going at some levels, although yeah, yes and no, I mean, it's, it's fairly intuitive for me, a lot of it, as I say, from the background, and, but continuing to learn. In fact, just as an aside, I actually did a master's in music education and health at the University of Toronto Music and Health. You know, they have a music and health research collaboratory. So that was really formative too, and a bit of part of the story of the education. But as we started, that's how we went, because I really really firmly believe because we've actually begun a, a social enterprise in this you have to be building relationships yeah um, in this care world it's it's really about that it's about people really understanding who you are and and what you're trying to do and build the relationships and us understanding who they are and so and actually leveraging the relationships so that they can speak into some of the next products we we create and that's sort of how it's gone. So in those first couple of years, I bet you I did 125 events of some sort. It was, it was, it was intense for sure. But, you know, one of my new colleagues in this world from Edmonton, he sat me down and he said, Doug, you know, you really do have the wrong model. Now I'm talking about a business model and I, I'm coming to the story of music care training because it's all part of the story. So at that time, of course, I had an incorporated music business from my performing and we had just made Room 217 a division of that. Oh, uh, it was our, okay. easy, it was our right. easiest way to get it yeah. going and have some integrity as a business. But it really, it was a for-profit business. And I mean, it, it didn't exactly match my goals for this. Anyway, he sat me down and said, because he'd heard, we had several conversations. He says, you know, you've got the wrong business model. You're actually a social entrepreneur. So in 2007 in Canada, that was a very new term. Maybe not so much in the UK, but here, social enterprise was, was relatively new. So I had to look it up and I did. And I went, oh, yeah, I think that is exactly, <laughs> that, that describes it. So we, my husband and I went to a lawyer, and a charitable lawyer, and we just sort of talked through the vision. And he gave us a particular kind of model. And it's the right, it's exactly the right model. So that in 2009, we began this. And I've got to say, the day that we decided, because I mean, for me to make the decision to do this, it's, it's impacted some of the rest of what I did as a musician. I just, I just don't have time to do it all. I mean, there's just so much opportunity in what we're doing with Room 217. But the day we, we decided to do it, you know, in 15 minutes, I sat down and wrote the vision. And education was a huge part of it. It was, you know, really part of the, one of the prongs of the three-pronged approach we take, resources, education, and training, and, and research and collaboration. So that was easy. We'd already been doing workshops and that sort of thing. And, and then we just sort of went, okay, so now let's, let's really build into this. That's how that sort of started. It was really out of the need we had discerned from doing all of those 125, I guess, workshops and, and, and speaking across the country in those first couple of years. We sensed there was a hunger. We sensed there was a need. And so we just began to work at that. And the training actually came out of, because it's, it's a story that has a continuum. Um, we did our first conference in 2010. 
And it was a huge success. It was a one day conference. And just overwhelmingly, the, what the aha was for people at that conference was that actually music is more than entertainment. Music actually has this healing therapeutic capacity. So and what for, stage was this in your business, Bev? So had you, you, that was you released two. recordings and you'd already started working with some care homes? Yes. So yeah, that was, for, we did that for about, just, just that for about two and a half, three years. We, we launched the foundation in 2009. Ah, okay you know, as its own entity, as a social, as a social enterprise, we had, you know, we had to get charitable status, all of those due diligent pieces for compliance. Yeah. So, you know, you can't skip those steps. Those are really important, but we did our first conference in 2010. And what happened after that conference was people said, Oh, let's, we really want you to do this again, but could you make it a three or four day conference? And you know what? I'm just not interested in that. I think for us, it's, when you're doing something with music, you want people to have an experience. Yeah. And, and that's how we've really designed. You've been to the Power of Music Conference in the UK and they've taken our model and shaped it for your culture. And, but generally speaking, the same kind of experience. It's a, it's, a, it's a musical experience and a learning experience. So we really didn't want to change that format. But what we decided to do instead was to develop a whole education program. So the first part we did was webinars, which we're, we continue to do once a month, free webinars oh, okay. in music and care. And the second step, was to develop a music care training program. And then the third step was to develop an online training. And we wanted to do it in that order because there's, there is something about our music care training that's face-to-face that is incomparable, really. You can do a lot online, but this face-to-face, there's something about that that's very strong. And so in 2014, we launched the music care training, which is a 52 hour learning program. And this is the care three... stuff, right? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. yeah well, it's, it's, it attracts and who we've really created it for would be allied care professionals, volunteer caregivers. And I think you call them carers. We call people caregivers here, or care partners. So anyone in the practice of giving care. Oh, okay. um, but also it's created for musicians who may want to, Uh, you know, they may find themselves in a care space and they're not quite sure how to approach it. It could be a community musician, it could be a faith-based group that all of a sudden finds themselves in doing doing some sort of work in care. And, And we've really made it so that it levels the carers and the musicians to come together into learning a bit of a new vocabulary in uh, music and care. And so it strengthens the outcomes we found um, because we've done extensive research on on the program, intervention research. But what we found for the caregiving side is that the training helps them with just becoming more confident to use music. On the musician side, they become just more understanding of the issues of what people in care spaces are actually dealing with. So that was yeah. a long-winded answer, but there you uh, go. No, that's great. No, and, and sort of brings me perfectly onto my next question, which is that from my own experience, personal and professional of, of care home staff um, and managers, there's a sort of an interest often in music, but a real lack of confidence. And certainly, you know, in my mum's care home, there was an amazing, we were very lucky that there was an amazing woman who just, she was the entertainment's coordinator and she just integrated care into every part of the day from the morning kind of brushing teeth to just singing in in odd moments during the day to actually having music 
um, activities based around music, which might be a quiz or something, but all sorts of ways. But it was all on her. And the other staff would say, I'm not musical. We hear it all the time in the music education sector, don't we, from other people. I'm not musical. So just really interested to hear a little bit more about how you give care home staff and the managers uh, in the first place who hold the purse strings um, the confidence to believe that they and their teams can do this music work with the people that they care for. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question. Well, first of all, we're all musical beings. So it's tapping into that, I think. And ge- and second of all, generally speaking, even people who may self-profess that they're, they're not musical, they tend to appreciate music and love music. And I've found they're the ones with like amazing playlists and that sort of yeah. thing. So while those two things are true, um, how do we do it? I guess I'm a firm believer that we can all use music in care. Uh, And I want to be careful just to say, while that is true, there are people that are real specialists at this. Yeah. And and that's to say that we can all use music and care does not negate anything about their their specialization or expertise. In fact, in my view, it makes it even sweeter and, and, and more necessary. So we've developed a, I guess you could say an approach and this, this is all done through the help of, of just a brilliant music therapist who we hired to help us write the curriculum. And, you know, we did a, quite a bit of research around it, this whole music care approach. So it's not a scope of practice. We're not talking here about somebody getting a, a degree in music care. It's not what it is. It's an approach. It's much more like a palliative care approach. Everybody in the palliative care experience family members, uh, neighbors, volunteers, doctors, everybody can use the approach to care. And that's much more what music care is. It's an approach. The basic philosophy is that we can all use music with intention Mm -hmm. to help improve health and well-being of ourselves and others. And I think it's the with intention part that is the basis of our integrated model of music care. And the with intention implies that you're going to have some training. Because what we have to really say right off the top, Anita, is that music can also have adverse effect. And we have to understand that it can set some things in motion that aren't so pleasant. And so knowing that, then we want to be, you know, as intentional about learning how to do it so, so that it won't go sideways or adversely, right? So that's the basis of of the philosophy. In terms of our training, and of course, everything we do is piloted and tested and and all that kind of stuff. So we piloted this with some caregivers. And the general flow, I, I guess you could say, of the three courses. So level one, which is like a baseline course, is the theory and the context of, and the application, I guess you could say, of music care. So Again, we just learn a language. We learn about our 10 domains of of music care, how it gets delivered, which I'll talk about in a moment. But the key takeaway are 10 simple strategies that people can use to integrate care every single day into their care practice with confidence. And we've had people that would come in through the door, don't make me sing, I'm not a singer. So we don't make them sing, but we actually encourage them with some other strategies. By the end of the two days, they actually are singing and they just, they they actually realize that it's, uh, you know, they're not being adjudicated. It's a whole different kind of situation. So that's the first level. The second level, and, and I should just say too, in level one, we just try not to make it intimidating. We really want it to be an inclusive, comfortable kind of situation. In level two, though, we really do ramp up the evidence in the sense that not that level one isn't based on evidence, but we don't talk about it too much. In level two, it's really all about the evidence. So not everybody goes on to level two, but people that are writing programs or who need more rationale, perhaps, for what they're doing, will take level two. And it's it's about whole person care, music and whole person. And by that, I mean 
the fact that music actually can penetrate and reach deeply into all human experience and all of our dimensions. And we define that as biological, emotional, cognitive, social, and spiritual. So what we do in that is we look at 10 effects from the research literature that music has on those five domain areas, two in each domain. And then for the 40 or so, we've had about, about 1,600 people in Canada and the UK take level one. And we have had about 450 take level two and about 40 with level three so far since 2014. And this is all done delivered live. And so level three, what we do by this point, people are pretty keen. The course is called Becoming a Music Care Advocate. So mm -hmm. what that implies is you're going to be a change agent. You're going to change the culture of care in your space with music. And what we do then is it's a bit of a different model. This one isn't so much face-to-face. -face. It's done more through mentorship by phone calls and you know, Zoom and that sort of thing. And we work with the students to really help them get their, what we call music care initiative. It's a project they've been doing all through the first and second course, actually get them to implement it fully by level three. So we give them 10 tools for music care advocacy. So it's, you really, if you take the whole course of 52 hours, you come out with 10 very practical strategies, 10 rationales or reasons from the research literature why music works, and then 10 practical tools for advocacy in your care setting. So it's a pretty comprehensive program. It sounds absolutely amazing. And this is why I was so interested to talk to you when I heard you talk at the Nottingham Conference of the Power of Music. It's just such a really interesting model and clearly because you have those agents of change will have massive impact um can people in the uk access that training and i know that you're working with the amazing opus music who are based in derby first of all the power of music conference is uh, going to happen again in 2021 in fact i just had a call on it this morning no, no date's been set yet except we know that it's going to be in the fall of 2021 and and this so, is a conference organized by nottingham universities yes and i want to bring up the university of nottingham because it was really their vision in the first place dr schneider and i met at the international alzheimer's conference and she said we have to get this training to the uk but to her knowledge there was nothing quite like it and so the university of nottingham actually invested in bringing us over i would say through them we probably trained 60 maybe 75 people in the uk in level one and about 30 in level two and we haven't done a level three yet with anybody from the UK, but certainly got it started. And what it, it was a great opportunity because, you know, for us, we would absolutely have to find a UK trainer. Like there was no way we were, this would be sustainable for us going back and forth. And we've toyed with the idea of putting it online, although there's, it's, it's a very, very powerful in-person training. So seriously, COVID has made us have to look at that, but we haven't come to any conclusion yet we, we still would really really like to deliver this in person yeah. and particularly in the context in people's care homes or care spaces or in hospitals oh, okay. so in in that time frame when we were at nottingham my mission was to find who could we find in the uk that we could train and they would be our trainers for the uk and we came upon uh you know we looked at various various groups but we came upon opus music just a, just a brilliant group of humans first of all yeah. but phenomenal musicians but they also their whole approach first of all they practice something called healthcare musicianship and it's a, it's they've been trained it's a, an apprenticeship training so we really admired their model part of what they do is reflective practice as well as as education, they they Absolutely. are very used to doing workshops. Yeah, and I guess probably our, more our values and our visions lined up. 
And so we've just enjoyed getting to know Nick and his team at Opus Music. And they have just done such a fantastic job. And thanks to Nottingham University for facilitating the handing of the baton. In that sense, we've been able to train them in, in the various levels. They've now done their own trainings over there with our music care training. So if any of your listeners are interested in training, they could reach out to Nick at opusmusic.org. They're willing to work with you. And as I say, we've been toying with how to put how to maybe do this remotely. I, we're, not, we're not sure, but I mean, I think it's worth the conversation. In terms of our webinars, the time difference would be a bit wonky, but, um, <laughs> you, you know, because I think you'd be taking our webinars at night, but those are free once a month. They go 10 months of the year from September to June. So anybody in the world could take those. And then our, our new, uh, we just this year launched our online studio, which is called the Virtual Music Care Learning Studio. And we have a couple of courses. We're just actually going to launch another one in June and two next fall. So these are courses that people can take to dig deeper. That's the whole point of those. It's, it's a dig deep kind of time around very specific topics. Ah, so there's basically the free webinars, which give people a flavor and the online courses, which take it a bit further, give them a bit more information in depth, but then the full set of courses for people to eventually become advocates are those three pronged. That's right. Face to face learning. Well put. That's very well put. (laughs) Good. That sounds fantastic. So I hope people who are listening will, will kind of um, investigate that, have a look at your website and also contact Opus Music. Can you tell me a little bit more about the kind of shape and scope of the, the training model in detail, how it works, how much time it involves, how many people it involves? Sure. So I'll, I'll maybe just refer to level one at the moment. Yeah. Um, it's a 14 hour training. It's over two days and it happens in four modules. We look first, as I say, at the theory and context, and then we look at two really important topics. One is music entrainment and and the sound environment, uh, which is a pretty hot topic, I think, in care spaces, just the general ambient sounds and environmental sounds and that sort of thing, and and how they impact on people's well-being. There's a lot of research on that, and we offer a lot of good background to that. And then the third module, we focus on breath and voice because we, we believe fundamentally our voices are instruments of care. And as we learn to use those with even more effect, you know, we can certainly connect and come alongside people in ways that we never potentially imagined. I'll give you an example of that. We were doing a training a couple of years ago with a large long-term care operator here in, well, they're in Ontario and I think, well, they're in Ontario and Quebec and I think they're in another province, but we were doing their Ontario training. So we did the training and the very next day, one of the attendees emailed us back and said, I just can't believe it works that quickly. But she, she was taking one of the residents in this long-term care home, I guess it was bathing and the resident always resisted, always was agitated. So she actually took her to the, to the bath and back and hummed all the way one of this resident's favorite tunes. And she said there was zero resistance. She said it was, it was like a miracle pill. So can you imagine the training, just teaching somebody how to hum? Oh, wow. Um, that's, yeah. There's a change. There's an improvement in the care experience right there. That's what we're about is teaching these from a musician's standpoint, like they're not even, they're not even difficult, but they're not things people think about. So it's about giving them the training, but also the confidence to use it and contextualizing it for them. And then these changes can occur. So, the th- and then the fourth part is, as I say, the 10 strategies, and we spend a whole day at that. But the key strategy is creating a music care initiative. So that's really about, it can be anything that 
matters to your care context and matters to you, but you've got to do something. <laughs> it's, it's an applied, it's an applied sort of thing. It's like, you can't just come and talk about it. You've got to actually go do something. So one, one I can tell you about that's just happened in the last six months. It's just, a, it, it's extraordinary. It doesn't sound like much, but it's, it's an incredible impact. So their music care initiative was to, in this particular context, the training was in its own care home, like one care home did the training. So 24 from the same place. So the, the bond in from the care staff was amazing because but they the program or the initiative they wanted to do was called music at mealtime and this particular long-term care home i think there's 232 residents or something it's a very unique one we it's virtually all adult mental health residents younger adults so it's a very unique group anyway in that situation they they mealtime was often difficult uh, so they thought let's let's see if we can create playlists and get everybody's preferences on the playlist and play them very strategically. So they did that very scientifically as a staff and they began the program and their, their stats are just incredible. I mean, they, it's things like people have gained five pounds, like I'm talking about residents because they're now eating, <laughs> there, there's less wow. falls, there's less food fights. You know, there's some real quantifiable differences and all from a very intentional program using music that the staff has developed together with the residents. So that's, that's, that's our happy place. And we can work with a staff or, a, you know, a care pers person or care worker and, and actually come up with some ways to use music that's appropriate for their context of care, where you're really meeting a need. That sounds amazing to me that in the space of two days, you can take people from that totally uninformed and probably not very confident to actually having a kind of action plan. And I'm really interested to hear about this evidence that you're getting back from your program, because I was going to go on to ask about how you evaluate the impact of your work. And I'm sure you've got so many amazing stories of change and sort of improved well-being. And sometimes it's those other sort of harder, small pieces of evidence, like putting on weight or um, less behavior incidents or other things like that, that tip the balance with somebody deciding to take on a program or not. So how do you evaluate the impact of your work? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. And it's one, you know, like when we started this, it's the one thing, if I could turn the clock back, I wish I'd put the, the measures in right from the beginning, but you'll, you know, you'll learn how to do that as you go. And certainly we, we've had phenomenal qualitative and, and anecdotal evidence. We've yeah. always had that right from, right from day one, but it's, it's, how do you get the, you know, the more quantifiable stuff over time, like weight gain and that sort of thing. So I don't want to mislead you that we do have a pre-test and a post-test for the training. It, a lot trickier for us to follow up with everybody yes. on the results. Yeah. But the, the program I was referring to is a very specific program called Music Care Partners. And that's been funded by the Ontario Trillium Foundation. And it's been a actually a four-year program, but at the moment we're in 24 this two-year section of that program, we're in 24 long-term care homes. It's been very much evaluated from top to bottom. The okay. challenge, I'm going to tell you the challenge for us moving forward for that as a program that's not a funded program is we just know that in long-term care, people don't have a lot of time mm -hmm. to do. And it's, and it's real people. They really, you want, want them focusing their time on residents, yeah. not so much on numbers. How we've done this particular evaluation, and I'm very excited about it. I mean, we, we've used some validated tools in the process. We've partnered with McMaster University in Hamilton on this. So 
some of their health science students we've used to invited them to help us do the collecting of data, which the, the long-term care homes have loved that. They don't mind that because it, it's not on them. But then we've also used what's called RyMDS data. I'm not sure. There's, it must be an equivalent in the UK. I'm not sure what it is, but it's, it's the standardized way long-term care residents are assessed on a month-to-month -month basis. So we've been able to integrate that information as well in our evaluation, which is fantastic because that, that they do collect. Um, mm. So that, that's pretty exciting. The other exciting piece, and we, we haven't got the results yet, they're just being done, but we, it's our first time, it's our first program we've ever done a cost-benefit analysis. We're really trying to show that using music can actually l lessen the cost. Like you take the, the one I just told you about with music at mealtime, they didn't have to use as much food. They didn't waste as much food so some of those numbers <laughs> like when you yeah. think about cost savings we as at room 270 but all of us in this line of work around music and health we need to be showing these numbers so that people can actually have more evidence than simply anecdotal evidence and it's all valuable but to tell the whole story i think we need all of it definitely need both and definitely commissioners and people who heard, um, hold the purse strings are influenced by different things aren't they there are some commissioners that i work with who have surprised me because they actually just want to know the stories they don't care about the sort of statistical evidence and then there are others who will only be influenced by cost savings so that's that's really interesting that you're beginning to gather that type of evidence and in terms of advocacy to people i was, I was going to also ask if you had any um lessons that other others can learn from about how you market your own work and advocate the importance of music to care homes yeah, so a lot of that is done. We have a, a fairly comprehensive website that gives a lot of information. We do a lot of going to conferences. It's very important for us, again, to be sort of shoulder to shoulder with caregivers, care providers. So we'd go to, you know, hospice kinds of gatherings. We'd go to long-term care gatherings. We might go to a ger gerontology gathering. We might go to an aging conference and try to present at it. Sometimes we've keynoted at it, but we can at least do a workshop or have an exhibit, that kind of thing. We hired this year, we, were, we wanted to test this and it got quickly stopped in the spring by, by COVID, but uh, we did hire a music care consultant this year. And the purpose of that role on our team was somebody who would go like actually get out of the office and go and visit in mm. right into care homes. And so that, that I think, I think he got up to 300 before COVID hit, oh, wow. uh, mostly here in Ontario, but he did, he did another province as well. And, and we were sort of hoping to test that out. For us, it's not just about, it's not about selling so much as it's, it's about resourcing. We, we yes. want to resource people. We want to provide the tools. Like I'm going back to the first question. Remember I, or those yeah. two questions I told you, do caregivers have access to tools? And the answer is, you know, there's not a lot out there that's really targeted. And I would also have to say that's a good artistic quality. So those are, of course, our interests. I guess the other thing is we've done a bit of digital marketing. I definitely going to be the next frontier for us. We, we just need to really gain more mastery over that. And we, we recognize that. But certainly the first 10 years of Room 217, it's all been all about developing relationships and developing content. You have to do it over time, building relationships and really paying attention. You can, you can have a lot of opportunities come your way, but which ones do you take? And I, I have to admit that day I met Dr. Schneider, it changed a lot of things for us because it began a whole new set of relationships 
with the University of Nottingham and, and subsequently with Opus and some other, other groups like uh, Dementia 2020 and Live Music Now and some of the groups in your country. And now I've met you. And, you know, you, you, these are important. You can't skip these things, but you also can't do everything. So you have to measure which opportunities. You've got to really stay true to your vision. And we don't apologize that we're not clinical. We just aren't. You know, and I, I would also say it's really important that we, all of us in music and health and, and the important role that you're doing here through education, that we work together on this. There's such big need. We, we're all needed. Definitely. And that's why that conference was so brilliant, because we all got to have really proper, rich conversations about it. And I'll need to wrap up reasonably soon. So I wondered if we could go on to a couple of questions from Twitter. Um, Liv McLennan, who's a community musician here in the UK, she specialises in working with people living with dementia and in care homes and asks, I'd love to know how Bev finds the challenge of integrating music and musical behaviours into the care system. She says it's very challenging in the UK as the care system can be quite hard to work with as a freelancer. How does she approach it? Yeah, it's a really good question, Liz. And it, it's exactly why, in my view, um, music care training is so essential. Because the only real way we're going to get, get music integrated is to have the care staff buy-in. So whether you're a community musician like yourself, Liz, or whether you are a music therapist, you're not going to be there 24-7. Maybe you'll be there a day. Maybe you'll be there an afternoon. Maybe you're there two or three hours. But the people that are there all the time, they're the ones that really, if, if we're going to make it sustainable, they've got to learn some, some skills. And really, uh, so I would say, you know, begin to, you may not be able to give them our standardized music care training, but begin to see them as your allies, begin to see them as sort of the people that you're, there's a, there's a word called discipling, right? Like you're making, oh, yeah. you're making many disciples of yourself in that sense. You're, you're, you're showing them how to do it. So yeah, you go in and do what you do, but you want to bring them alongside and through modeling, even show them how to actually integrate it. It's wonderful. You've got that opportunity, but there's no question. It's a challenge. Um, we do have a, one of our courses on the virtual learning studio is recruiting musicians for health and social care. And with that course comes a really helpful handbook, both sides, if you're a musician going in, but if you're an administrator of a care home wanting to hire a musician, that's probably the tool we could, we could help you with. That's a really great answer to that question. Thank you for that. And then Fiona Thompson, who's she's actually a harpist and also a copywriter, she asks, I'd like to know whether Bev thinks it's important to use music that people with dementia can relate to, um, music they know and love, or whether all kinds of music can be relevant. That Fiona, that's such a great question. And it's almost a topic for another whole meeting, but I'll try to I'll try do to that. <laughs> I'll try to keep it short, but we all have musical stock, right? The stuff that that's accompanied us through our lifetime. And so when, when you play the familiar for people with dementia, it typically it can wake them up or it can, it actually neuro, from a neural perspective, it can actually align neural pathways because the music may have, you know, accompanied some, some life event. And by playing that music, it can realign the pathways that may not have died because in, in dementia, we know that musical pathways can be retained and it actually then takes them right back to that event. So in some ways, using familiar music is exactly what you want. You know, it can help trigger memory. It can help trigger conversation. I've watched, I've watched it wake people up. I've also watched it trigger painful memories. 
you, you just have to be really careful. You know, what I would say, if how to respond to that is beyond your scope, beyond your ability to deal with, then you really need to have sort of a B plan and somebody, you know, like a music therapist or a social worker or somebody that you, a chaplain, somebody you can refer that situation to. But there is a case to be made for unknown music because we also know that people can continue learning and can continue making new neural connections, even when they have dementia. So that's a very short answer to it. It's a really great question and it's a big one. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. And finally, can you give us three practical pieces of advice for others working in music and health or social care who are listening? I'd like to do that, especially for care folks that are that are listening and, and musicians that are listening too. But the first thing I would say, and I, I this is one of the, our demystifiers for people that are really anxious about doing music, the priority of music and care is about presence. It's not about perfect performance. So I think that's a really, really important piece. It's really about showing up and being human and being present with somebody else. I'm a musician and I'm a musician who cares about good quality and good artistic execution and all that sort of stuff. But what I found is putting the priority on human presence does a whole lot of things for everybody. That's another one I could blow out in a lot of directions, but I'll just leave it at that. The second thing I would say is don't feel you've got to do it all at once. Start with one song. We, we, that's one of the strategies we teach. It's called the one song method. And we just encourage people to find a song or a part of a song that you're really confident with. Like it's something you'd sing in the shower. It's something you'd sing in the car with your kids and they wouldn't ask you to stop singing. You know what I mean? It's the kind of thing that you wouldn't be afraid to. So be something like lean on me when you're not strong. I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. Might even be that much of a song. Doesn't have to be the whole song. But you take that much that you're confident with and begin to integrate it, adapt it, whistle it, hum it, sing it, see what happens, play with it, sing it fast, sing it slow, sing it loud, sing it soft, and see what actually happens. Begin to play with the whole notion of music and care, but using that one piece of song that you feel comfortable with. And then the third thing, which is probably a no brainer is make some investment, some personal investment in tooling up, whatever that is, you know, whether it's coming to the power of music conference, taking an online course, I got to tell you the music dementia 2020 coming out of your country campaign. What an impressive, very impressive. And if you go on that website, there's a truckload of fantastic educational materials there that could get you started. To me, it's not even about investing money yet. It's about investing time. Just go and search some things out. So get started at investing time and knowing some of those things. That's brilliant practical advice. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really inspiring. That lovely story you told about your kind of start of this organization is is just beautiful. And then to finish off with those three practical actions is, is so helpful. And I hope we get a chance to talk again. Oh, that'd be great, Anita. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, and just, I really appreciate the relationship we have with all of you in the UK. Sending our love and greetings to all of you through this pandemic. Thank you so much, Bev. And if you want to read more about Room 217, I will share the link to their website, some resources and case studies in the show notes. So thank you all for listening. That's the end of our show this time. Thank you for listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast and make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes. 
If you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how I help music and creative organisations through communications, then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch. Thanks for listening and have a great week.